E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Danny Meyer of the Union Square Hospitality Group on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm good. I'm happy to be here. Great to have you here. So tell me, did your dad drink wine? My dad drank a lot of wine. Yeah. What was usually around the house? His favorite wines were Burgundy's, Beaujolais. He had a lot of red Bordeaux. More than anything else, I'd say Beaujolais was on the table. And he, you know, he and my mom would drink at least half a bottle every night. And what we would do with the rest of the wine the next day would be go out and barbecue something and if the flames got too high licking the steak, he'd use the leftover wine to try to douse the flames. It didn't really help because the alcohol just made more flames. We called it barbecue, and it was really grilling outdoors. Um, he and I just loved hanging out and grilling stuff together. And, of course, his favorite dish to make over the stove, there were two things that kind of come to my mind. One was something we called Egg Saturday. And I haven't had it for a lot of years, but it's it's really good. He would make bacon and drain most of the fat from the bacon, crack several eggs on top of the bacon, top the whole thing with Swiss cheese and paprika, and put the top on. And so you kind of had, by the time you were done, steamed eggs with melted cheese and bacon. And that was eggs Saturday. And then the thing at dinner time that he loved doing that wasn't grilling was ratatouille. He was amazing at making ratatouille so much so that we named our first dog ratatouille at home good job with the movie as well i wish that movie was my movie that came several years after our dog it does seem like your dad was early on a gourmet in an era where it wasn't that common well it's funny you say that because as i was just thinking about making the ratatouille he had a entire collection of gourmet magazines but he also had the entire collection of gourmet magazine cookbook which were these big fat heavy brown books. And I don't really remember him using them too often for cooking. What I do remember is that he would use them to weigh down the eggplant before making the ratatouille to get all the moisture out of the eggplant. But he was a, he was a good cook. And it kind of came naturally to me to think about wine because there was always a bottle of wine on the table. And it just wasn't, it wasn't something I had to come by too much later in my life, they always kind of, my mom and dad encouraged us to take a little sip of wine. And for that reason, it was something that 
didn't seem like something you were not supposed to do, but instead it seemed like a natural part of the table just as much as salt and pepper. You know, my parents made a similar ratatouille recipe, but we used the New Yorker magazine, and it wasn't the same. I got to tell you, it was, you could really taste it. Well, and you had an older brother. No, I have a younger brother. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I'm the middle of three, and um, he's an amazing professor up at SUNY New Paltz. My dad was the managing editor of the Daily Princetonian when he went to Princeton, and he was a great writer, great editor. And uh, I think my brother got that because he kicks my my rear end. We play Scrabble online all the time, and he's the better of the two of us. Is that why you didn't want to open a second restaurant for a while? There was a lot of Scrabble time with the... No, the as a matter of fact, that was before the internet. <laughs> right, right. So, you know... It, you were using an used, abacus back then? Well, back then, it, we, I was using a slide rule. It used to take getting together in order to play Scrabble, but now we can play wherever in the world we are. So you ended up working for your dad as a tour guide for a little while. I did. When my dad opened a business primarily in Europe to sell group tours to airline employees and their families, by the time my brother and sister and I each turned 20, we got to spend a summer in the country of our choice, working for my dad as a tour guide. So my sister, two years before me, had picked Denmark. Um, My brother later would pick France, and I picked Italy. And so I was based in Rome, and I was working for my dad. It was one of the greatest summers of my life. I learned so much, and I, I actually credit that summer with my choice ultimately to go into the restaurant business. I still didn't know that that's what I wanted to do, but I went off the plan almost every single group tour because people had bought into an itinerary where they literally knew what they were going to do every single minute of the tour. And instead of taking people to the Cameo factory so I could get commissions from the Cameo place or or instead of taking people to this museum or that church, I was the guy who was often taking them to trattorias around Rome because I got not only great tips from the, the guests who were thrilled with how I had gone off plan, but I was also getting a thousand lira commission per head from each of these family-run trattorias for bringing them so much business. But the biggest thing I think I was getting was a priceless education because I was learning about the food of Rome and I was learning about how important it was for me to take people who were really cranky people on day one of a tour, getting off the airplane and turning them into the happiest person by the fifth day of the tour. It seems like Italian wine has been the constant throughout most of your career. Well, it's been something I've loved. And, you know, if you go back to those early days, the choice was real simple. It was vino rosso or vino bianco because most of these trattorias did not have a wine list. And it didn't matter. And, you know, that's actually an important thing for me that the only choice I really had was which trattoria was I going to and did I want a mezzo litro or a full litro of wine. So that's kind of a cool thing because what it does is that it it puts you in a position where you, you say, this is not about how much do I know about wine. It's not about what kind of choices do I have to make. It's basically, this trattoria has said, this is our house wine. And the purpose of this wine on the table is to make your food taste better and to help you have an even more animated conversation with the people you're with. And that was a really cool thing because it just cemented in my mind something that I feel very strongly about today is, if anything, I think most restaurants, and I would say including ours, have too many wines on the list. You don't really need 
more than 31 flavors at Baskin Robbins. In fact, you probably don't really need even more than four flavors at Baskin Robbins, but you certainly don't need more than 40 or 50 choices on a wine list, and yet most of us have way more than that on our wine lists. What else did you learn while you were in Rome? I learned that there's a food version of what I was just telling you about wine, which is that since there was about an 80 to 90% menu crossover from every single one of the restaurants, the trattorias that I would go to in Rome, it wasn't so much about innovation and ingenuity and gimmickry. It was about hospitality. It's true, and I've done this, if you taste 20 different carbonaras at 20 different trattorias in Rome, there are going to be slight differences. There is going to be one that is your favorite for one reason or another, if that's something you're really interested in doing. But you're not going to go to 20 different restaurants and find 20 completely different menu offerings. You're going to get carbonara at every one of them and matriciana at every single one of them and gricha at every single one of them. So what I learned more than anything was that you went back to the trattoria, sure, the one that cooked the best food, although it's kind of hard to get a horrible meal in, in Rome. But you mostly went back to the trattoria that loved you the most. And I'd say if I learned any one thing from that experience is that my favorite restaurants, even in a city like New York, where seemingly every restaurant has to have a gimmick, but my favorite restaurants, the ones I, I'll go, I'll go to try any new restaurant but the ones I go back to are the ones that love me the most. And I feel like that's probably true for most people. And so that's something that we've strived to do. And, you know, bringing this back to wine for a minute, I think that a wine list has the opportunity to love you. I think a wine, a wine list also has the converse opportunity, which, which is that we didn't make any of these wines. It's unlike everything on our food menu where we actually made it, and justifiably, a chef or a restaurateur might say, the reason I'm charging $2 more for this chicken dish than the one you got next door is that the ingredients we put into making this and the time and effort actually cost us $2 more. But I don't understand restaurants that did not make the wine but believe that they can justify charging 25 or 50% or 100% more for the same product that you can get next door. Where did, where did they add that value? It doesn't make sense. So I think that a great way to love your guest is to put yourself in their shoes and to say, how can we use both the selection of wines and the way we price our wines to remind you that we're on your side? Was that something that was important to you in the home life? In the book, you talked about a little bit of a subtle diplomacy between mom and dad, sometimes grandfather. Well, when I wrote Setting the Table, I was kind of forced by the publisher to turn this into a personal memoir, which had not been my... Oh, I was trying to do that just now, too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my uh, what I really wanted to try to do was what I thought I was signing up to do in the first place, which was to write a book to talk about why I think it feels differently dining in our restaurants than perhaps in someone else's restaurant. Um, they did ask me to turn it into a personal memoir, and I, I understood where they were going because they said, look... This was HarperCollins, and they said, we're the most successful publisher of business books in history, and there's three different kind of business books that sell, and you're none of them. This was after they bought the book, and they said, the three kind of books that sell are books by celebrity authors, people like Jack Welch from GE or Lee Iacocca from Chrysler, and they said, no one's ever heard of you before in middle America, so you better tell us who you are. 
Second kind of book that sells are books by expert business analysts like Jim Collins writing Good to Great or Built to Last. And that's not you either. So you better tell us about the restaurant business because that's what you know. And the third kind of book that sells are people who write fables based on one business principle like change is hard. So someone wrote Who Moved My Cheese? And you're not a fabulist, but you better tell us what your business lessons have been. And they said, if you do all three of those things, we will know who you are. We'll know what kind of problems you confronted in the restaurant business, and we'll know how you solve them. And they said, if there's one piece of good news for you, this, this is how they motivated me to write Setting the Table. They said, if there's one piece of good news for you, everyone on earth has either worked in a restaurant or eaten in a restaurant. They may or may not be right about that, but they said, you know, no one has any idea what GE does. So you, at least you have one advantage. So because they made me turn this into a personal memoir, they, they made me kind of go deep and think about what had motivated certain aspects of why we do the things we do. And, you know, I think if I learned any one thing, it, it was that while we've all been brought up hearing about the golden rule, which is do unto others as you would have others do unto you. I think I learned a lesson, which is that there's kind of an adjunct to the golden rule, which I call the golden rule of hospitality, which is do unto others as you believe they would want done unto them. Because what it forces you to do, the golden rule is a monologue. It's one size fits all. It's me projecting me onto you, which is not fair. That's that's not fair because everyone in the world is different from me. But my golden rule of hospitality, do unto others as you believe they would want done unto them, forces me as the person delivering the hospitality to imagine how I think you feel in your shoes, not how I would feel if I were in your shoes. And I think that's a hugely important distinction if what you want at the end of the day is for the person on the receiving end to feel loved and to feel like we're on their side. And it seems like no one's been better at that than you over the course of your career. But sometimes when I talk to longtime restaurant people, they have a hard time opening up about their personal life because it's just not what they're trained to do. They're trained to take care of other people. I think the value for anyone of being self-reflective and and self-aware is that unless you know what's motivating you and unless you know, you know what your subconscious has always been directing you to do, you're not going to be nearly as effective at being there for other people because you're going to bring your stuff to the table too much, actually. So I certainly didn't want setting the table to turn into a psychoanalytic session with Danny Meyer, but I did want to explain to people what my own motivations were. And at the end of the day, I know how I feel when I go out to eat in a restaurant, and I know how I want to feel. I just want to feel a little bit better afterwards than I felt before I got there. And it takes two of us to make that happen. I have to want that, but the restaurant also has to want that. And I'm different from every other guest. So in hospitality, one size fits one. In service, one size fits all. I think hospitality is universal. I don't know any human being on earth that would prefer if I was not on their side. Maybe there is, but... I think what we need to acknowledge is that in different cultures, it takes different things to be on your side. And so I think that you gotta, if you're going to be in the restaurant business and your desire is that 
you're making people feel better. That's the reason we cook the food. We don't cook the food for the sake of the chef's ego. We don't put wines on the list for the sake of the, the sommelier's ego. We should be presenting an experience that we think is going to make you feel better. And if you come to the restaurant and we can custom fit our experience for you to make it feel even better, that's hospitality. Hospitality is a custom-made suit. It's not just give me one right off the rack. It's got to be that way. Spoken like someone who lived in Rome for a while. <laughs> that one. Who couldn't afford to buy suits back then. <laughs> Your first restaurant job was at a restaurant here in New York called Pesca. And you actually met a couple important people there, Michael Romano and, and your wife. That's probably. right. I, I met a lot of really important people at Pesca. I met my career at Pesca. I, uh, it's, it's funny you ask the question. I'm actually having dinner tonight with the same aunt and uncle that I was with the night before taking the LSATs at the same restaurant we went to, Elio's, on the Upper East Side. And I revisit that restaurant a lot because that was a just maybe the most important night of my life because I thought, like so many people do, that I'm supposed to pursue a career because I had a political science degree from Trinity College. And back in those days, if you had a poli-sci degree, you're supposed to go be a lawyer. And some lawyers even went into politics. And I was kind of interested in that stuff back then. But it just took me a while to, to figure out that I didn't really want to be a lawyer just because that was the supposed path. But it was over dinner at Elio's that night, the night before taking my LSATs, that I was really grumpy and it, it concerned wine. The first thing is everyone was having a great time drinking, I think it was Chianti Classico or something, and I couldn't drink. And so that made me grumpy. But the thing that was really making me grumpy was that I didn't even want to be a lawyer. But it took my uncle to look me in the eye and, and to say, why don't you just do what you've been talking about your whole life? And I didn't know what I had been talking about my whole life. I didn't have the self-awareness to know that he had seen me fascinated by food for my whole life. And I knew I liked food, but I never in a million years imagined that it was a valid career choice in 1984, which is when this conversation took place, to choose to go into the restaurant business. So I, I just kind of, you know, knowing that we were going to be having this conversation today put me in an introspective mood to begin with. And so I thought, wouldn't it be nice to, to go revisit that restaurant with the same aunt and uncle and with a woman who I met at my first restaurant job who later became my wife, Audrey. That's probably a good example of someone, your uncle in this case, being on your side. More than on my side. And it felt like tough love at the beginning because you can't know what it's like to have spent the last several years thinking, this is not only what I'm supposed to do, but this is what I will do. And he rocked, he rocked me off my seat when he said, why in the world would you do something around which you have no passion? And he was the guy that said, you're going to be dead forever if being dead forever is the denominator. And I don't know how many years you're going to be alive, but a hell of a lot less than forever. And that's the numerator. He said, why in the world would you waste those precious few moments that you have to be alive doing something that you're not excited about? And that was tough love, but it was the most important, probably the most important piece of advice 
I ever got, an insight I ever got from someone else in my life. And I'm so grateful I can't even tell you. What was his profession? Well, he, that's a great question. He was and is an artist. As a matter of fact, a lot of the art at Union Square Cafe is art that he's done. In fact, some of the art that we had at Tabla, some of the art that we have at Mayalino is done by my uncle. But he had a second profession. He was actually, his name is Richard Polsky. He happened to be one of the original writers for Sesame Street. And then he taught a class in oral history at Columbia. And so, like you, he knows how to ask a good question. And I think that that was the reason that he had the kind of insights to ask me to tell him why in the world I was thinking about being a lawyer. You know, I would be the worst lawyer on earth. I don't actually love having arguments with people. I can't even imagine litigating and thinking that that's a fun thing to do. Can I get you anything to defend it and stuff? You know, what can I do for you? You look hungry. You want a sandwich? So at Pesca, what was that like? You tasted wine, did some wine training? Well, I was lucky that the reason that I went to work there was I said to myself, all right, let's find out. Is this something you want to do? And a good friend of mine from college who I had hoped would open a restaurant with me one day had been told by his father over my dead body, will you go into that nasty business? You're going to business school. And I was terribly let down because this friend of mine who I love to this day, um, I, I said, you can be the money guy. I'll be the food guy and we'll open a restaurant together. So I was terribly let down that his dad had intervened and he felt terrible leaving me in the lurch. He was at the time working in a bank training program And back then, banks ran the other way if you said you were a restaurant. So his bank had exactly one restaurant customer, a big bank, U.S. Trust. And my friend was nice enough to introduce me to their one restaurant customer, which was Pesca. The interview consisted of the owner looking me up and down and and then within about six seconds telling me, you'll do. Was this a male or a female? It was a male. Okay, just trying to set the context. Yeah, he said, you'll do. And that was my interview. And I got to start my job, you know, the following Monday. And it was a great experience. I was paid $250 a week. And uh, on my very first day of work, I was running down the stairs of the kitchen to the reservation office. This was obviously way before Open Table or the Internet. And we spent a heck of a lot of our time trying to figure out who had the reservation book because there was only one reservation book. And it's either downstairs or upstairs or in the chef's office. But I was the head reservationist. I was also the head maitre d' at lunchtime. And I was the guy responsible for typing out the specials, not on a computer, obviously, but on a typewriter with correcto tape. Very first day of my job, I'm running down the stairs And I kind of do a double take because there was a beautiful woman running up the stairs with a platter of butter that she had portioned out into little ramekins. That turned out to be a beautiful young actress named Audrey Heffernan, who is now Audrey Meyer, my wife. Day two, she was gone. And I was like, "Where, where, where where did that one go? And it turned out that she had gotten a role to play the lead in Guys and Dolls, Sarah Brown and Guys and Dolls. So she was gone. But it was about five or six months later that I picked up the telephone one day and it was Audrey trying to get back on the schedule 
And I said, I'm going to make that happen for you. And we actually had our very first date on my last night of work before I went off to, uh, to cook in Italy and France. And we haven't stopped since. And you did a lot of dining together in Europe in those days. Absolutely. You know, Audrey had never been to, to Europe in her life. And she saved up her own money from working at the restaurant, bought herself a ticket on TWA. And I had just finished doing a stage in Bordeaux at that time. I will never forget this as long as I live. I was so excited and nervous. I was going to be meeting her at Charles de Gaulle, um, crack of dawn. And the day before I had taken the train from Bordeaux up to Paris and I had really long hair and I had a mustache because I had been living with French people and Italian people for the previous couple of months. And, uh, the night before, I had heard that the best place to get cassoulet was a restaurant called La Mazère. And I went to the restaurant by myself, and I ate the entire portion of cassoulet for two, all by myself, with a bottle of Kaur, because, you know... That's what you're supposed to that's do. That's what you're supposed that's to do. That's the classic pairing. And all I know is that I got back to my hotel room after dining solo by about 10 o'clock at night. By 11 o'clock at night, the beans were growing in my stomach. By midnight, I'm rolling uncontrollably in the bed trying to find a position that I can actually sleep in. And I would say that what, whatever portion of cassoulet I ate was now probably approaching a volume of 3x in my stomach by about 2 in the morning. And the combination of indigestion and excitement meant that I probably slept about one hour and I get to the airport, deep circles under my eyes. As Audrey tells the story, I also just smelled something horrible because I guess I had been inculcated that deodorant was kind of beside the point. And the amount of cheese I had eaten over the past several months was oozing out my pores. And she arrives for the first time in Europe in her life and in Paris, seriously questioning who this guy had become that she had had a crush on. But we ended up having a fantastic time. It was her birthday. And uh, the restaurant in Bordeaux had sent me to Paris with a terrine of fresh foie gras, as well as a half bottle of Chateau Guiraud Sauterne. And I'd gotten the hotel to keep it on ice. And so despite the fact that I really wasn't that hungry, I welcomed Audrey to Paris. And we were just eating foie gras and drinking Chateau Guiraud. And that started a fantastic trip. Where else did you go? Well, we went to Chez Michel on Rue Belzance. But I remember more than anything, the reason we went to Chez Michel was we wanted to find a place right next to the train station because we would be taking the Orient Express overnight to Venice. But then we rented a car and we drove down towards Florence. I was really interested in dining at a group of restaurants in Italy that were trying to break out from the Trattoria pack. And so we were finding one or two of these places along the way and drinking really good wine. We stayed at Lungarotti down in Umbria. So good back um, then, 70s and 80s. That so was, good. It was great wine. The Rubescos were really, really good, but not only was it great, but you could stay there and you would get to your room and there was a built-in refrigerator flush with the wall, so you would open the refrigerator, and there were all of Lingarotti's wines included in the price of the room. So we had a great time there. 
And I remember taking Audrey to Enoteca Pinkiori, which was the first time I had ever seen anybody with the little, you know, when they uncork the wine, they do it in such a way that they inject the cork in the capsule so that the cork is standing side by side with the top of the bottle as they pour it. Those little details, I, I can remember it like it was yesterday. What was Pinkiori like back then? It was really good. It was a tasting menu back then. You didn't know what you were going to get. I had never seen any restaurant in my life do that. That was way before you know, so many restaurants have done that. They were really, really nice. Their wine list was the best wine list I think I'd ever seen in my life, especially because by this point I had fallen in love with wine. I, and I, the three books I was taking with me everywhere I went, I had the American Express Pocket Guide to Eating in Italy. I had the Victor Hazan book, which was Wines of Italy, which was really helping me learn a lot. And then I had another book, which was, um, I don't remember who wrote it, but it, it was all about restaurants of Rome, I think. And I took all three of the books everywhere, and I just wanted to hit everything. I wanted to taste every wine. I wanted to understand why were some wines so expensive, and why were there wines that were inexpensive that I love so much. And I'd say that one of the things I really fell in love with at this time was trying to find the wine that was dramatically less expensive just because it was made on the slightly wrong side of the tracks. And so I found that, you know, through my time in France, I was really excited to drink Saint-Aubin because I couldn't afford Pouligny Montrachet, but I loved that I thought it was just as good or just about as good. And I was constantly looking for those opportunities. I love discovering Chateau Raymond Lafont, made by the same guy that made Chateau Ikem, for a fraction of the price. And, you know, I wasn't out suggesting that it was Chateau Ikem, but the price differential relative to the qualitative differential was dramatically greater. So I kind of made a, a habit out of trying to find those opportunities. You know, Gigondas was a, a great opportunity if I couldn't afford Chateau Neuf du Pop. Very, very different wines, but why not try? Saint Joseph was a great opportunity if I couldn't afford Hermitage. Very different wines, but why not use that as my opportunity to open, open financial doors to drinking wine and enjoying wine and learning that you could, at the end of the day, get just as much pleasure out of a wine that was a quarter of the price. Was that first trip uh, with Audrey the trip where you went to Tayavant for the first time? or No, I didn't get to Tayavant for the first time until a few years after Union Square Cafe opened. Because it wasn't until a few years after Union Square Cafe opened that I started to graduate myself into wanting to collect Michelin two- and three-star restaurants. I was absolutely fine eating at zero-star restaurants. I was fine eating at bistros in France, trattorias in Italy. But I think that probably four or five or six years into Union Square Cafe, I, so now we're talking late 80s, early 90s, I started finding myself more interested in especially the countryside two-star restaurants of France and Italy, places where... 
you had an elevated culinary experience, an elevated wine experience, but you still had the down-to-earthness that you would find in the countryside. Tiamont was the first Michelin three-star restaurant that I ever found that was just nice. They were nice to you. They weren't looking down their nose saying, who do you think you are eating at this restaurant, Mr. Young Restaurateur? They were bringing a sense of fun, a sense of whimsy to a very refined experience. And I had just had never seen those two things. So those were years where I was saying to myself, all right, I'm really, really proud that Union Square Cafe is good and getting better, but one day I might want more. And it was that kind of exploration that led to Gramercy Tavern, which was always designed, in my mind anyway, and early on in Tom Colicchio's mind, to become a New York version of a countryside two-star Michelin restaurant. That's interesting because eventually at Union Square Cafe, you worked with Michael Romano, and he had worked at Michel Garrard. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if he somewhat influenced your idea of the French countryside great restaurant. I think he did. I think, you know, Michael had not only worked at Michel Garrard, but in New York, he was the chef of La Caravelle, and he had worked at some other fine restaurants in Europe. He worked at the Bristol in London. He worked at Chez Max in Zurich. Very, very meticulous chef and a very, very fine chef. And Michael and I traveled together in those early days, sometimes to France, more often to Italy. He actually felt liberated to be able to come to a downtown restaurant. He felt liberated to be able to explore his own family's Italian culinary traditions. And there's no question in my mind that as I was thinking about next steps, I was saying to myself, what can we possibly offer to the dialogue of the refined restaurant experience? And that's when I was starting to develop a sense that if Union Square Cafe was a refined version of a cafe, because back in those days, cafe meant just that. It, it was a breezy place to come in and out of quickly. I wanted Union Square Cafe to have better food and wine than you had ever had at a cafe. Then the next question, what would be next? And so I started thinking about the notion of a tavern. And every culture has had its version of a tavern. It could be a taverna. It could be in Greece, they have tabetna. I don't even know how they pronounce it there. New England certainly had its share of taverns. And the tavern history I found fascinating. It was always the best restaurant in town. Generally, it was also the only restaurant in town. But it was the place that people came together for socializing. They did business there. They did politics there. There were no telephones. There were no nothing. So if you wanted to get something done with people, you came to the tavern. And I thought that that what we could maybe next do would be to, to do a really accessible version of a really fancy restaurant, as opposed to a really refined version of a really casual restaurant, which is what I thought Union Square Cafe was. And I started toying around in my mind with, maybe it's the middle child in me, but how do I bring things to the center? How do I make fine dining more accessible to more people? And I think if you look back at the origins of Union Square Cafe, it was, how do you make a neighborhood restaurant destination-worthy? I've always loved kind of playing with that, even in something like Blue Smoke, a barbecue restaurant, or even in Shake Shack, a burger restaurant, which is, how do you take the most accessible thing on earth, 
the burger and shakes and fries experience and make it better than people remember it ever being. Or take something like The Modern, which is a hugely refined restaurant. I think 11 Madison Park was the same thing, where the bones of the place shout at you, this is going to be a refined experience. And how do you make that feel warmer? How do you blur the line between going out and coming home? That's something that I'm just constantly interested in tweaking. Before you opened up Union Square Cafe, you used to dine with Brian Miller sometimes. What was he like back in that era? Well, Brian and I had first met taking a wine class together at L'Academie du Vin, which in those days was hosted in New York in the basement of a restaurant called Lavin's. I think it was 39th Street between 5th and 6th. And this goes back so far that California wines on a wine list were starting to be a thing for the first time. That's how long ago this was. And Lavin's always did a uh, a barrel tasting, and so did the Four Seasons restaurant of what was going on in California. So I had signed up for this class. I had heard good things about it. I have absolutely no idea how I had even heard about this class, which was taught by a woman named Melissa Surrey. And Brian Miller was a guy in the class that I connected with. I had no idea who he was. He had no idea who I was. And we just had a really, really good connection. And we went out drinking together, drinking wine. We went out eating together. And I soon learned that he had recently been a reporter at the Hartford Current, which created a nice connection because I'd gone to college, Trinity College in Hartford, and that he was recently hired by the New York Times. Not to be a restaurant critic, they had a very good restaurant critic, thank you, named Mimi Sheraton, but he was going to be writing about wine primarily, and that's why he was taking the class, and food he was going to be writing about. Frank Pryle was the uh, longstanding wine writer at the time, so Brian was going to be sort of the undercard, and he didn't know what was going to happen with his career. And to kind of wind the clock forward a little bit, when I was several months later, many months later, in Bordeaux cooking, I got a letter from Brian, because back then there was no email, or certainly texting or anything, And Brian wrote me and he said, I've got amazing news. I've just learned that I'm going to get a new beat called Diner's Journal, which I'd never heard of before. And he said, so we're going to have an opportunity to eat in more restaurants when you come back. And I wrote back and I said, well, I've got good news too. I'm going to be opening a restaurant. And I just hadn't really talked to many people about that because I actually wasn't sure I thought I wanted to, but I wasn't sure. And what's interesting is that from that moment on, the two of us couldn't go out to eat at as many places. Although, for a couple months, we were able to. And I had a priceless opportunity. Once I became a restaurateur, we, we actually stopped talking for years um, because we couldn't. But for a couple months before, you know, way, way before Union Square Cafe opened. So now I'm talking about probably February and March of 1985. That was probably the end of it. Union Square Cafe would open in October of 1985. I had a priceless opportunity to go on a couple of Brian's review meals. And on one or two of them, I remember that Pierre Frenet and Craig Claiborne came along as well. And they were the deans of 
restaurants uh, in New York City for the New York Times. They shared this amazing column in the Sunday New York Times. They had written the 60-minute gourmet together. Craig Claiborne had been the dean of all restaurant critics for the New York Times for many, many years. And I got to go out to eat with these guys and hear how they were reacting to restaurants. It was absolutely amazing. I, don't, I just don't know how you could get that kind of education. Unfortunately, it came to a screeching halt because there's just no, we both knew that there was no way that we could do that. And every time Brian ate at Union Square Cafe, I never knew he was coming. Um, although when he was there, of course I knew it was him who was there. And I was just about as nervous as you could be, right down to and including spilling a glass of champagne the night that he dined at Union Square Cafe with the actress Mariel Hemingway all over her lap. So, I mean, I've got another great wine story. I was so nervous every time Brian came. So nervous that I got Bell's palsy. Um, and also so nervous that there was one night that I had, I just knew back in those days, the restaurant critic would have three dinners and two lunches. And I knew his patterns enough to suspect that this might be the night for his third dinner. And it happened to be at a time when our refrigerator, which I had inherited from the vegetarian restaurant Brownies, which had been there for 49 years before us, but I couldn't afford a new refrigerator behind the bar. It, it was completely broken, but not in that it didn't cool the wine. It was so broken that we couldn't regulate it below about 34 degrees. So the wine was as close to being frozen as you could imagine. And I remember very, very well that Brian never liked his white wine to be too cold. So there came a night when I suspected Brian might be coming. And man, I hit the jackpot. He was there that night. It was going to be his final visit. And I had told our bartender team, I said, I've seen every wine he's ordered. I was keeping track. And I know he's going to order a wine he's never had before. So I want you to take these five wines and put them to the side because I know he's going to order one of them. And sure enough, he played right into my hands and he ordered a uh, Ronco del Niemitz um, Tokai Friulano, just like I, I guessed. It was one of the five I had I'd said, take these out of the refrigerator the minute he gets to the restaurant because he can't stand when a, when a wine is too cold. So they had taken him out. Sure enough, he orders it. And I go up to the bar and I feel the bottle. It's still way too cold. And so I put the bottle between my legs, hoping to warm it. And the waiter comes up to me after about two minutes of having the wine between my legs. And he said, they're asking where the wine is. Can you please, can I just have it? And I said, nope, because I don't want to get dinged for having wine that's too cold. Just hang tight with me while I keep warming this up between my legs. So, you know, there's probably like four people looking at me like I'm somewhat strange. I finally give him the bottle of Tokai Friulano, the waiter. He brings it to the table. And about two minutes, he comes back to me with the bottle. And I look at him. I was like, what's the problem? He said, Mr. Miller has just sent the bottle back because it's too warm. And so the more you know sometimes can actually work against you. We ended up getting a a really nice two-star review. And this was a day and age when two stars truly meant very good. It didn't mean not as good as I thought you were going to be. And what Brian told me many, many years after that 
<clears throat> and you know, one one thing that I feel great about is that three years later, when Michael Romano started at the restaurant, Union Square Cafe earned a three star review from Brian Miller. Um, but what he told me was that he was very very conflicted about that, and he talked to his his editor at the New York Times, and he said, "I know this guy, and I like this guy, and if I hate it." I don't want to hurt him. I'm going to not write anything. But if I like it, I'm actually going to hold back a little bit because I don't want anyone to be able to say that, that I was out there overly promoting a friend. And so he told me in, in later years that he absolutely did not think it was quite worth three stars. He thought two was the right amount, but he would have been even more generous in his two-star editorial narrative if we hadn't known one another. I feel like somebody else who you made a connection with at that time was Pat Seta of Sparks. I did. Pat was, um, interestingly, the night that I signed my lease with Sam Brown, who was the old man who had founded the vegetarian restaurant Brownies, which occupied the Union Square Cafe original site for 49 years. What I didn't know about Sam was that he was secretly a meat eater. I had no idea. You know, he wore sandals with white socks and he had a peace necklace hanging around his neck. And he wanted to celebrate the signing of our deal at Spark Steakhouse. And I was, that's interesting. That sounds good to me and much more fun than going to a vegetarian restaurant. And it turned out that Sparks was his favorite restaurant because before it was Spark Steakhouse on East 46th Street, it was Seta Brothers Steakhouse on East 18th Street, which now for many years has been the home of Paul and Jimmy's, an Italian restaurant. And he had been, Sam Brown, had been very, very good friends with Pat Seta because for years they were neighbors. Brownies was on 16th Street, Seta Brothers was on 18th Street, and that's where Sam would sneak off to eat meat when nobody was looking. So he wanted to take me to, to Sparks. And... Pat sat down with us at the table that night for at least three quarters of our meals. He was grilling me with questions. And I guess he found it interesting that, you know, a young guy, 20, I guess I was 27 at the time, was going to be opening a restaurant in the neighborhood. And he kept bringing wine to the table. And I kept loving it. And I think that was my key to unlocking one of my early mentors and realizing you know, we were completely cut out of two different cloths. I'm a Jewish guy from St. Louis, and he was an Italian guy. And we did business very, very differently. We both loved wine. We both loved the restaurant business. I had a lot to learn. I didn't know what I was talking about. And I have a, an, an ability to find mentors in odd places. And all it really takes is to communicate with your two ears. If you want a good mentor, realize that the best way you can communicate is to close your mouth and listen. And he had priceless advice on how to run a restaurant, priceless advice. Um, I think he was grateful to meet somebody who also, you know, wanted to offer really good drinking value from the wine list. And he wanted to find somebody who wanted to listen to him. And he had a lot of sage advice. And he turned into a guy who, for whatever reason, would just show up at my door. I mean, I'd... I'd be in the middle of trying to figure out some problem. It could have had to do with how to be a better boss. It could have had to do with something that should or shouldn't go on our menu. 
that could have had to deal with how to deal with the landlord, could have had to deal with how to work with the press, all kinds of things that I didn't understand. And right in the middle of dealing with whatever that topic was, almost mysteriously or magically, he would appear at Union Square Cafe, almost like Yoda. And it was never a good time because when you're dealing or grappling with a big problem, you don't have time because the problem is consuming whatever free time you had that you didn't have anyway. But there he would be. And I just found that by asking him questions, he had amazing advice for me. And I think, as is the case with any mentor-mentee relationship, both sides of that equation are obviously fulfilling a need, and, and he must have had a need to teach. And I just feel so fortunate that he was he was there when I needed him. And uh, here's the cool thing. To this day, whenever we sign a new lease for a new restaurant, we celebrate it with the landlord at Sparks. And it's gotten to the point that if Danny Meyer's name is on the book at Sparks, the first question that I'm asked is, where's the new restaurant going to be? So you had a, a pretty cool thing happen, which was that Amex filmed a commercial at Union Square Cafe. And how did that affect what happened at your restaurant? Well, I, I grappled with whether or not to do this advertisement with American Express. This was back in 1992. And so Union Square Cafe at this point was seven years old. And American Express back then was having some pretty serious issues with the fine dining restaurant industry. We had come off of a pretty big recession. 1991, 1992 was the Gulf War, followed by a, a pretty big recession. And restaurateurs who were working on very thin margins were looking for every opportunity to save money. And the American Express charge, also called the discount rate, even though there was no discount involved, was something that restaurateurs were looking to try to minimize. And American Express back then had somewhat of an arrogant point of view. And they said, no, we're not going to touch that. You need our customers because our customers spend more money than Visa and MasterCard customers. And, you know, American Express at that point asked me if I would do an advertisement with them to talk about why American Express customers were better customers than anyone else. And I said, you know, I'm honored that you're asking me to do that, but I don't, I don't think they are better customers. I said, but if you ever want to do a commercial that lets me tell the world how generous your company has been in helping share our strength to fight hunger, I would be glad to tell that story. So I didn't hear from them for the longest time. And so I said to myself, well, I guess I just lost my opportunity to do what was going to be a radio ad in Boston, because Boston is where the, the restaurateurs were most upset. They were going to have, they were going to call it the Boston credit card tea party, or I forget what it was going to be called. But I didn't hear from anybody until about three months later. And then I got a call and the call was from Ogilvy and Mather, American Express's ad firm. And they said, you know, we've been thinking about this. Instead of doing a radio ad for Boston, what would you think about your message about American Express fighting hunger? And what would you think about it if we made a TV commercial? And I kind of dropped my jaw because that had never been my goal. As a matter of fact, I had a really, really um, 
kind of visceral reaction that maybe this would not be such a good idea. And my wife, Audrey, said, you have to do this because this could be way bigger than your restaurant. This could actually encourage not only American Express and other restaurateurs to keep fighting hunger, but it could even potentially show that this is a good way to do business. And that was a really important turning point in my entire career because it was a moment when I really had to choose, was I going to kind of come out as an industry leader or was I just going to be a restaurateur? Fine to be just a restaurateur. That, that would have been fine with me. But I thought it was important to, I thought it was an important thing to step out and do this. The ad ended up being a huge hit for American Express. I saw it for the first time in the most odd way. I was um, going to a Rangers hockey game. And I'm standing in line to get a hot dog or something at Madison Square Garden. And there was a TV monitor over all six of the lines at the concession stand. And all of a sudden, I hear my voice. It was the weirdest thing on earth. And I look up, and there's six versions of me on my advertisement. And I'm kind of looking around to see if anyone notices me, which, of course, they didn't. But the next time, you know, the next time I heard this was actually on the inauguration of Bill Clinton as president of the United States. It was a commercial. And it totally put... Union Square Cafe on the map, put Share Our Strength on the map. But what it did for American Express was it actually really underscored for them that cause-related marketing was something they might want to think about for other causes. And and so it's just uh, it's just one of those moments that I was presented with an opportunity, and, and I'm glad I'm glad how I chose to move on this. And when did Robert Chatterton, the wine importer, become a friend of yours or an acquaintance of yours? Well, I had heard about Robert Chatterton for the first time when I was working at Pesca. And I had never heard of him in my life. I had definitely heard about his mentor, whose name was Frank Schoonmacher. Because when I would go to wine stores as a young guy in New York City on not a great budget, what you realized was, you could buy wine on a budget by trying to get inexpensive wines. But the real value was, can you just get a good wine? And when I saw that Frank Schoonmacher label on a wine, I always felt, at whatever price, this is going to drink well. And it was the first time in my life I had learned that rather than looking at the label of who produced the wine, it might be a good idea to look at who imported the wine. That's just not something I had ever been taught growing up. And so I really hadn't heard that much about Robert Chatterton, even though his label existed at this point. So during my time at Pesca, there came a day when there was this hush that came over the restaurant, the likes of which I had never heard before. And the general manager and the bar manager and the owner of the restaurant were all talking about this mystery man who had been out of the marketplace. For some reason, I think he had had a bad car accident. In fact, I remember that quite clearly. And a kind of car accident that almost killed him in France. And he was coming back. And he had actually granted the restaurant an opportunity to taste some of his wines. Because he was famous for not letting anyone taste his wines. You either wanted them or you didn't. You trusted him or you didn't. And so... The great Robert Chatterton was going to limp in on his new feet and let Pesca 
try his wines. And that was the first time I had ever heard of him. I was not allowed to go to the meeting, which is fine. But I did get an opportunity to taste the wines that he left with the restaurant to taste. And they blew me away. There was one wine I remember really distinctly, both the white and the red from Mercure. I had never even known there was such thing as a Mercure Blanc. Maybe I had had a Mercure Rouge once in my life. But when I tasted those wines, there was something about, I don't know, there was just something about how they expressed themselves that completely, completely blew me away. I remember having a wine from the Rhone Valley from a producer I had never heard of called Pignon, which he had left for us to taste. And I had heard that it was a junior Chateauneuf-du-Pape. I believe Pesca would be able to put it on their wine list. Uh, and by the way, we also had the Pignon Blanc. Um, I had never tasted a white Chateauneuf-du-Pape. And I think Pesca was able to put that on their wine list for $23 a bottle. And I just thought that it was fascinating. That was the closest I ever got to Robert Chatterton, except that I started buying his wines as a consumer. And I started learning about wines by tasting anything that had his name on it. And so when it came time for me to open Union Square Cafe, the first thing that I remember as I was trying to put my wine list together, I had also befriended someone by the name of Rory Callahan, who was a great wine educator. And Rory introduced me to every major importer in the city. And the neatest thing happened. I had an apartment, a rental apartment on 15th Street at this point, not far from where Union Square Cafe would be. I didn't even have a liquor license at this point for Union Square Cafe. But all I had to do was call these wine importers on the telephone. And I would say, these are the two wines on your list. Rory had lent me a copy of the beverage media. I never even knew what that was until this point. And I started picking out all the wines that I knew that I wanted to have on our opening wine list. And I would call each of these five or six people that he introduced me to. And lo and behold... Not only would the one or two wines from their list show up in my apartment, but invariably they would send me 12 other things to taste while they were at it. I had never played that game before. The next thing I know, at the age of 27, I've got an apartment full of probably 400 bottles of wine, and I hadn't paid a penny. So I thought, I'm going to like this game. This is going to be fun, except that I didn't like most of the wines that were there. I then said to myself, i got to gather the courage to call the Wizard of Oz, also known as Robert Chatterton, and I did. And he started grilling me on the telephone about what this restaurant would be. He was interviewing me as if I was trying to get a job, and I decided to have dinner with him with the person who would be our chef, the opening chef of Union Square Cafe, Ali Barker. And so the three of us had dinner at a, a French restaurant on 6th Avenue called La Gauloise, it was a really nice bistro. And once again, he was grilling me. And the first thing he looked at me and he said, how old are you anyway? And I said, I'm, I'm 27. Why? How old are you? And he probably had not expected my response. And he said, well, I'm 37. And I've already forgotten a hell of a lot more than you're going to learn in the next, you know, period of your life. And I said to myself, game on. Let's go. 
And I determined to myself that I was going to learn as much from this person as I possibly could. And I succeeded at learning as much from this person as I possibly could, really for the next, I'd say, 25 years. Um, he schooled me in only old world wines. He hated anything from the new world, with a couple exceptions in Australia, which he then learned to hate himself, even after he had first loved them. There was a reason his company was called Robert Chattern and Selections, because he had two flavors in his life, good and horrible. There was nothing in between. And if you were picked as a Robert Chattern in Selection, you were in the column A, the good column. And if you were in the wrong column, he just didn't talk to you. And he had a lot of feelings about a lot of things beyond wine. He had a lot of feelings about a lot of people beyond wine. And you were either in column A or in column B. And I got to travel with him on several occasions to France, to Italy. I got to meet some of the most amazing winemakers in the world. So uh, who are some of those? Giuseppe Quintarelli uh, was one that comes to mind. Who's now passed. So what was he like as a person? He was the most remarkable, humble person you can imagine. I'll never forget a day that uh, I probably spent five hours in his cellar with Michael Romano just tasting wine with him. And unfortunately, Robert Chatterton had told me in advance that Giuseppe, or his nickname was Beppe, his wife was one of the most amazing cooks on earth. And so Michael Romano and I didn't eat anything for breakfast and we were asked to be there at 11.30. We figured that must be lunchtime. By the time it got to be 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and all we had been doing was drinking Valpolicella, Amarone, Ricciotto, Alzero Cabernet Franc, Rosso di Beppi, Bandito, his dessert wine, and we had had two morsels of Parmigiano Reggiano. There was no lunch that day. We were just completely, completely wasted by the end of that day. And somehow we scrambled to have a late dinner, probably an auto grill or something like that. But it was an incredible tasting. And we spent the entire five or six hours with Quintarelli, not only blown away with his wine, but blown away that every time we tasted something, he would tell us what was wrong with it. And he would tell us in a very, very humble way, why he thought he should have done better. And he understood that he was subservient to Mother Nature, that Mother Nature and his earth gave him the grapes, and his job was to do the least possible harm to what he had been given. And I still have a picture of him in my office because I look at that because I feel that that's my journey. I feel like that's my company's journey, which is we're given a lot of amazing opportunity, and our job is to not screw it up. But every day we find ways to do that. Who are some of the other vineyards in the world that really made an impact on you during your travels? Without any question, Valentino Milarini, Union Square Cafe's house wine from the day we opened was Brico Manzoni. And there was another guy who was very, very humble and, and generous. And I learned from these guys that the rare combination of three things. You almost never find any of these three things at such a high level in any human being, but you almost never 
find all three of them together. And that is someone who's committed to the journey of excellence. They're committed to starting every day, honoring the work they did yesterday, imperfect though it may be, and trying to enumerate the ways they could have done it better and committed to trying to do it a little bit better tomorrow. That's the journey of excellence. Number two is generosity. People who look at each day as an opportunity to give something more, not to take something more, but to give something more. These are people who, all of whom would have pruned their vines dramatically, cutting back their production dramatically, if only it meant that what was in your glass would be a wine that would give and give and give. And one of the things that Robert Chatterton taught me to do was to really understand that the finish of a wine had as much to teach you as your first impression. And that came from the generosity in the personality of the winemaker. And the third part was humility, that these were all winemakers who were not making their wine primarily for the benefit of getting a big score from a publication, but rather for the smile it might put on the face of the person drinking it. And I think consequently, a lot of the wines that found their way into Robert Chatterton's selections, many of which found their way onto our list, were wines that were actually tremendously undervalued because these were not publicity seekers. And the proof in the pudding is that after Robert Chatterton closed shop, just as mysteriously as he had been in business, he was out of business. But when he closed shop, almost every single one of those wines has dramatically gone up in price because whoever inherited, whoever was fortunate enough to inherit those working relationships with these winemakers pointed out to them, you should be getting a lot more money for your wine because let me show you how good your wine is compared to these other six that are all charging a whole lot more than you are. Did you meet Bartolo Mascarello while he was alive? I never got to meet Mascarello. Nope. I did get to meet Jacques Reno. That's um, awesome. That was a great experience. That was like going to visit the Wizard of Oz also. He wouldn't answer his phone, much less make an appointment with you. And uh, I pulled my car up. I got instructions on how to get there. And as a matter of fact, Robert Chatterton wouldn't even call him on my behalf. He said, if you're lucky, he'll be there. And if you're not, he won't be there. And what I did was I pulled up to his estate, which is not easy to find. It's not really in the area delimited as Chateauneuf-du-Pop. It sort of is. And this was way before we had GPS or anything like that. But I found my way there. And I had brought the Union Square Cafe wine list with me, which had four of his wines on the list. And I pulled up my car pushed the doorbell. I felt like I was going to a haunted house. And all of a sudden, someone looks looks out a window on the second floor. Fortunately, didn't have a shotgun or anything like that. Came downstairs, opened the creaky door, and it was Reno. And I brandished my Union Square Cafe wine list, pointed to his wine on the list, spoke some French with him, and begrudgingly, he let me inside. And I saw... I saw something kind of amazing, you know, compared to going to a, a place in, in the Napa Valley where everything was as modern and sparkly clean as you could imagine it. This was as old and decrepit and full of spider webs and mold as you could imagine. 
And I knew how good the wines were. And I just had to ask myself, is this really where these wines are made? And the answer is absolutely. And by the way, I said this to myself, if you went to eat any great cheese in France, it's the mold that makes it so. And so these conditions that I found actually taught me something, which is that we're not trying to drink a pasteurized, scrubbed product. We're trying to take grape juice and ferment it and make it taste like heaven. And that's exactly what was happening with Chateau Rios. So That was a pretty cool experience. Danny Meyer has seen many amazing things in his career, and we'll have to have you back on the show to tell us about some of the others. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Levy. Danny Meyer is at the Union Square Hospitality Group based in New York. Thank you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.